and welcome to part 2 of episode 56 of Pay-Per-View. And the next subject is medicinal marijuana. This is in the Daily Mail. Medicinal cannabis has opened a Pandora's box of patients who believe it is a miracle cure, Chief Medical Officer warns. Legalising medicinal cannabis has led to people getting carried away with what they believe it could treat, England's Chief Medical Officer has warned. Dame Sally Davis spoke in Parliament yesterday to say she has concerns about the safety of cannabis-based medicines. She called for more clinical trials to test the safety and effectiveness of the drugs and said doctors must not cut corners. Cannabis-based medicine was legalised in the UK in November and is only available to a limited number of patients, mainly children with severe epilepsy. But the previous illegality of the medicine means clinical trials have not been done in the past, so evidence of how well they work and for what is thin on the ground. Dame Sally has been the government's chief medical advisor since 2011. Speaking to the Health Select Committee yesterday, she said doctors were rightly hesitant to dish out cannabis-based drugs without good evidence from clinical trials. In the highest profile cases of the children who prompted the law change, they had already been taking the medication legally before it was allowed. I think we have opened a Pandora's box and there is a belief that it works for many conditions, Dame Sally said. I do have concerns about safety. The article goes on. Various benefits of cannabis-based medicines are widely claimed but not well proven. The article goes on. Various benefits of cannabis-based medicines are widely claimed but not well proven. People claim they help epilepsy, chronic pain, depression and PTSD, multiple sclerosis and even controversially cancer. Mothers of children with severe forms of epilepsy say they have found their children have far fewer procedures when they are treated regularly with cannabis oil. But Dame Sally warned the chemical THC, which makes people high when they take cannabis, has links to depression, schizophrenia and brain development problems in young people. She called for more in-depth trials to be done to find out how the drugs actually affect patients who take them, and private companies set to profit the most from selling the drugs should help to fund them, she said. Randomised control studies properly done are the way to go forward, Dame Sally Davis said. It would be great if the industry would make a contribution to this. I really hope we can do trials because without those, how can we help the patients? But clinical trials take a long time and desperate parents insist the clock is ticking for their epileptic children who could be helped by the drug. Dame Sally said, without an evidence base, we cannot license these drugs and move them into whatever turns out to be the rightful place in medicine. But when asked if the process can be streamlined to allow patients quicker access to the product, she said, there is no shortcut. We have to find out how it works and what the impact is. Campaigner Peter Carroll, who represents at least 16 families lobbying Parliament to get access for their severely epileptic children, said waiting to compile more evidence will be unforgivable. Speaking on behalf of the campaign group End Our Pain, Mr Carroll said some children suffer some 300 seizures a week. He told the committee, how can we tell these children they have to wait four or five years? That is unforgivable. These prescriptions can and should be written now. The article goes on. Families of children with severe epilepsy handed a petition with 578,000 signatures to 10 Downing Street calling for the guidance on prescribing medicinal cannabis to be reviewed. Organised by Endar Payne, the petition said that despite medicinal cannabis being rescheduled, guidance issued by the Royal College of Physicians and British Paediatric Neurology Association was so restrictive that almost no one would get access to medicinal cannabis. It is supported by Hannah Deacon, whose son Alfie Dingley was the first person in the UK to receive a permanent medical cannabis licence and went on to be granted the first NHS prescription issued after the law in the UK changed. Speaking at Parliament, Ms Deacon said she could not stand back and let other children suffer after seeing the wonderful change medicinal cannabis has had on Alfie. She said that since the prescription, her seven-year-old son had gone from being in hospital 48 times in one year to just one hospital admission in a year. Parents Matt and Ali Hughes from Norwich said the clock was ticking for their 20-month-old son Charlie who suffered from as many as 100 seizures a day. Can you imagine what that must be like? It's just 
beyond my comprehension, I tell you that. One is frightening enough, especially if you're a baby or a kid, or anyone really, but especially if you're a kid. But a hundred a day is just, well, just no words for it, is there really? The article goes on. His rare form of epilepsy stops the brain from developing. If we can stop the seizures by getting cannabis oil, we can give him a chance to develop. It could completely change his outcome and give him a better quality of life, said Mrs. Hughes. Other families said they have been reduced to criminality by spending thousands of pounds to bring the drug into the UK from Holland to help their children. Is that not a sign of how backwards the system is? That a drug which could potentially help someone's child is denied them, so they have to turn to criminality just to get hold of the drug in episode 14 i talk about the state making decisions over treatment for children instead of parents and that's just an expression of the state taking over from parents in total which is the plan in the end as i've talked about before it also goes on but alette addison head of pharmacy development and regulation at the department of health and social care told the select commission that without an evidence-based doctors will not be confident prescribing the drugs she also denied that the current guidance was too restrictive insisting it was based on the best international evidence available she added doctors are only going to be confident prescribing signing that form if they have the evidence base to do so and it's not there at the moment and there's another section here first one the landmark case of billy coldwell Cannabis oil was thrust into the limelight when epileptic boy Billy Caldwell's mother had seven bottles confiscated at Heathrow Airport Customs. The twelve-year-old sparked a row over the medi- the twelve-year-old sparked a row over the medicinal status of the oil, prompting the Home Office to step in and grant his mother Charlotte an emergency license for the product that was calming his seizures, which contained THC. Billy's bottles were confiscated on June the 11th after Miss Caldwell brought them in from Toronto. On the back of the cases of Billy and fellow epileptic boy Alfred Dingley, aged six, Home Secretary Sajid Javid called for a review into medicinal cannabis. In a major shift of policy, he announced in July that some products containing the drug would be available on prescription in the UK from the autumn. On the back of today's change to the law, Ms Codwell said she wept with joy. For me, what started off as a journey which was about the needs of my little boy actually turned into something, proved to be something a lot bigger, she told Sky News. It proved to be the needs of a nation. Medicinal cannabis gave me back my right as a mummy to hope, but the most important thing medicinal cannabis has done is given Billy back his right to life. Only relatively recently did our government and country really start to appreciate just how many wee children and people of all ages were affected by the difficulties associated with accessing medicinal cannabis. But it became clear it was not just about what was perceived to be a small number of very sick children and that medicinal cannabis can make a life-changing or life-saving difference to more than a million people. Although thrilled by the law change, Ms Coldwell hopes regulations will be expanded to allow more people to benefit from cannabis-based treatments. This is new ground for everybody. We did in a few days what successive UK governments failed to do in more than half a century and made medicinal cannabis legal, she said. Well, that's an interesting point there, because if the people actually came together and used the intelligence and the cleverness and the creativity that is present within the population, they could do things without the need for government and make things happen without the need for government and authority. It's just that people don't do it, that's all. The quote goes on. Then, as now, politicians did not realise the complexities involved. There's a wide range of conditions, each of which can only be treated by certain forms of medicinal cannabis. Right. Now, it's important not to look at this in black and white or to take sides. This is where debates like this get sidetracked. You're either for it or against it. Well, how about just withdrawing from that and just looking at it dispassionately.
any drug which has been clinically trialled and tested and is beneficial to patients should be used, either to alleviate pain and suffering, to reduce the symptoms of an illness or condition, or maybe even to remove the illness or condition, possibly entirely from the body or mind, depending on what the drug is and what it does, or can do, and the nature of the illness or condition. If medicinal marijuana helps people deal with conditions, illnesses, then of course it should be used, if it's safe, if it's proven to be safe. I have to say, though, I do see a possible sleight of hand here. Because the more it's legalized, the more you're moving towards the point where it's legalized for general recreational use. And of course, many people already use marijuana recreationally. And I'm not saying this is necessarily the case, but I think it's possible that increased legalization could be intended as part of an agenda to eventually legalize marijuana for general use. Because anything which diverts attention from world events and information people need to know about is to be encouraged from the establishment and the elite's perspective. All the diversions we have in society, from entertainment and celebrity, sport, technology, party politics, religion, not so much today religion, but it's some parts of the world still, and it could be that marijuana is intended to be added to that list. The question that is hardly ever asked, but really ought to be, is not so much what about this or that drug, but why do people take drugs in the first place? In many cases where it's not trauma caused by something in someone's own personal life, it will be to escape society because of the madhouse that human society is. And people in many cases won't realize this is why they're taking drugs because some drugs like alcohol, for example, are seen as just a drink while socializing. But on a deeper level, in some cases, kind of subconsciously, it's actually a means of escape. Some people do it to escape consciously, but others it's more of a subconscious thing, even though they just think they're going out for a drink. While the cause of the problem remains, the escapism will remain. And this is what human society does brilliantly. It finds a solution to the problem rather than removing the cause, because removing the cause is seen to be a lot harder and more of an effort than simply finding a solution. So most people go for finding a solution for any problem, not just this, but any problem. Removing the cause of the problem, of any problem, is always seen to be more of a challenge. So people don't do it, they just try to find a solution. And that partly explains why we have the madhouse that we have, because solutions either make things worse or cover the problem rather than getting rid of it, sometimes only temporarily. Drugs and other means of escapism are not going to challenge authority in the elite's agenda. In fact, they're only going to help advance it, because if people are hooked on those outlets. They're not going to face what's going on in society in the world, and thus they're obviously not therefore going to challenge it. I'm not saying that some of the means of escapism should not be enjoyed. Everything in moderation, for example. Alcohol can be simply a drink while socializing, or it can be an addiction and harmful to health. It's not the alcohol in of itself that's the problem, it's how it's used. Entertainment and sport can be just enjoyed as a pastime, or they can be the focus of your attention at the exclusion of what's going on. It's not the thing itself necessarily so much, it's the person involved with it. And of course, especially relevant to entertainment and sport, is that addiction puts the blinkers on peripheral vision. And it's in peripheral vision where the madness going on in our world and society is to be seen. And we're in a time now where we need more focus than ever before an awareness than ever before of the nightmare agenda facing humanity, which I've 
detail during the course of pay-per-view. And the final subject of episode 56 is... Iran, this is in the Daily Mail. Iran to cement ties with Lebanon, Hezbollah, despite US pressure. Iran said on Sunday it would expand its ties with Lebanon in spite of the provocative and interventionist call by US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo from Beirut to two sides, Iranian state television reported, on a regional tour to drum up support for Washington's harder line against Tehran. Pompeo said on Friday that Lebanon faced a choice, bravely move forward, as an independent and proud nation or allow the dark ambitions of Iran and Hezbollah to dictate your future. Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesman Baram Qasemi dismissed Pompeo's remarks. Because of the failure of its policies in the Middle East, America has turned to the outdated and disgraced weapon of threats and intimidation to impose its imperious policies on other countries, Qasemi said state television reported. While respecting the independence of Lebanon and the free will of its government and nation, Iran will use all its capacities to strengthen unity inside Lebanon and also to expand its ties with Lebanon. The article goes on. Hezbollah, whose influence has expanded at home and in the region, controls three of 30 ministries in the government led by Western-backed Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri, the largest number in its history. The dominant Shiite Muslim power, Iran and Hezbollah, founded in 1982 by Iran's revolutionary guards and major players in the war in Syria and the fight against militant groups opposed to President Bashar al-Assad, which include Islamic State. Qasemi said that Lebanon's Hezbollah was a legal and popular party. How can Pompeo make such impudent and irrational remarks about Hezbollah while visiting Lebanon, he said. Tensions between Tehran and Washington have increased since US President Donald Trump pulled out of a 2015 nuclear deal between Iran and six world powers last May and then reimposed sanctions on the Islamic Republic. The restoration of sanctions is part of a wider effort by Trump to force Iran to further curb its nuclear program and to end its ballistic missile work as well as its support for proxy forces in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon and other parts of the Middle East. And there's another article here, also in the Daily Mail, connected to this. Oman allows U.S. military to use its ports. Oman has announced it has signed an agreement with the United States that would allow American ships and warplanes to take advantage of ports and airports. The state-run Oman news agency said the framework agreement was aimed at bolstering Omani-American military relations in a report on its English-language website. It would allow the U.S. forces to take advantage from the facilities offered to some of the sultanates ports and airports during visits of the U.S. military vessels and aircrafts, particularly in the port of Dukum, it said. Dukum port is located in southern Oman on the Arabian Sea and around 500 kilometers, 310 miles, from the Strait of Hormuz. At the mouth of the Gulf, the Strait is crucial to global energy supplies, with about a third of the world's seaborne oil passing through it every day. Shiite Iran has repeatedly threatened to block the Strait due to tensions with the Sunni-ruled Gulf nations including its main regional rival, Saudi Arabia. The narrow waterway is also an international transit route where American forces routinely pass and which has seen intense encounters between them and Iranian forces in the past. The United States has a number of military bases across the Gulf, the largest in Qatar, with about 10,000 troops. The U.S.-Omani deal was signed by the defense ministries of both countries. Isn't it interesting that country after country on the hit list of America and Britain have always provided excuses to be targeted? Google project for the new American century. The list of countries in a document called Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy, Forces and Resources for a New Century, produced by that organization in September 2000 by people who directly and indirectly interfaced with the Bush administration, have been picked off since. 
Iran has long been a target of the West. In episode 49, I talk about the West's foreign policy, which goes back decades. Conflict with Iran obviously implicates Russia and China, which were two other West targets. This is why we're seeing constant efforts to demonize Russia and why US military bases are surrounding Russia and China. In episode 16, I talk about Trump pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, the implications of that and the real reason for it. Donald Trump is the most elite Zionist in American presidential history. And my God, there's been some competition. And the Zionist neocons around Trump will want to achieve conflict with Iran during Trump's presidency, preferably during his first term if possible. The key element in the desire for conflict with Iran is Israel, which wants conflict with Iran and it's Israel who dictate American foreign policy. As I've said before, to say that Israel through elite Zionism controls American politics and has done for decades, is to say that if you keep your hand on the cooker while cooking, your hand might get a bit warm. And with Donald Trump now in office, Zionist control has been taken to another level. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was caught out in a live recording which he was unaware of talking about how he persuaded Trump to pull out of the nuclear deal. The Sunni-Shia or Shiite conflict from the political West perspective is very simple. Sunni countries are West allies and this explains why Oman is allowing the US to use its military ports because Oman, the UAE and Saudi Arabia are Sunni countries. Shia countries like Iran, Iraq and Syria are West targets. Next to Saudi Arabia and Oman is Yemen which Saudi Arabia with American and Britain supplied weaponry is now attacking. In episode 48 I talk about the Greater Israel Project and when you look at a map just above Israel is Lebanon, above that is Syria, both West targets. To the right of Syria is Iraq, regime changed by the West. To the left of Iraq is the West ally of Saudi Arabia, ultimately controlled by Israel. And I'm going to go into detail about that in the next few months, why that is. And this will explain why ISIS never attacks Israel, even though you think that would be the first country they'd head for. To the right of Iraq is Iran, and then across the Red Sea you've got Egypt, and to the left of Egypt is Libya, another West target regime changed by the West. This all connects into the Greater Israel Project I talk about in episode 48, and explains why the West's foreign policy in the middle, Near East and North Africa is what it is, and explains why there's constant conflicts in that part of the world. In episode 48 I talk about Israel engaging in airstrikes on Iranian targets in Syria. I talk about why Israel wants conflict with Iran and Syria and the long game behind the West's foreign policy. One of the reasons, although far from the main reason, for targeting Iran is the oil flow through the Strait of Hormuz. And not only for money either, but for control. If you control a commodity like oil in a country, then that places you in a massive position of power over that country. Iran is being labelled as a nuclear power when it doesn't even have a nuclear arsenal. And yet Israel, who has a nuclear arsenal, and the second biggest F-16 fleet outside of America is never labelled a threat because the political leaders of the West and further afield know the consequences of doing so. Iran has never conflicted with anyone in its history. America and Britain on the other hand. But all you have to do is tell the people through the media that Iran is a nuclear power and a threat and people will believe it because the media and politicians are saying it. There's an article here from The Independent from September 2016. Colin Powell leaked emails, Israel has 200 nukes all pointed at Iran, former US Secretary of State says. 
Israel has 200 nuclear weapons, according to the latest revelation hidden in a cache of Colin Powell's leaked emails. The former U.S. Secretary of State revealed the information in an email he sent to a colleague last year, which was obtained by the hacking group DC Leaks and published on Loblog, a foreign policy blog. Israel has a policy of nuclear ambiguity and has never talked about the type or size of its weapons, even if it has been an open secret that the U.S. ally is well armed. Some Israel watchers estimate the country has as many as 400 weapons, but Mr. Powell is one of the most authoritative sources to date. He was writing to business partner and Democratic donor Jeffrey Leeds regarding Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's speech to US Congress warning them against the nuclear deal with Iran which would limit Tehran's nuclear ability in return for lifting international oil and financial sanctions. The deal was nonetheless finalized last summer. Negotiators can't get what he wants, wrote Mr. Powell in the email. Anyway, Iranians can't use one. A nuclear weapon, that is. Iranians can't use one if they finally make one. The boys in Tehran know Israel has 200 all targeted on Tehran, and we have thousands. As Ahmadinejad said, as Ahmadinejad said, former leader of Iran, what would we do with one? Polish it? I have spoken publicly about both North Korea and Iran. We'll blow up the only thing they care about, regime survival. Where? How would they? Where? How would they even test one? The article goes on. The U.S.-Iran deal requires Iran to reduce its stockpile of low-enriched uranium used to fuel bombs by 98%, as well as limit their enrichment capacity in research and development for the next decade and a half. Yet Mr. Powell publicly endorsed the agreement. He told NBC's Meet the Press in September 2015 that it was a pretty good deal, but did not seem so keen in another email to Mr. Leeds a few months later. He expressed doubt to Mr. Leeds that Iran could test out a nuclear weapon within a year. In the email, the retired statesman in general also acknowledged that sanctions would not be enough to halt Iran if it was really bent on developing nuclear weapons. They, the Iranians, say correctly that they have every right to enrich uranium for energy. Russians helped build a nuclear power reactor at Busher. Can't get enough sanctions to break them. Lots of bullshit around, but their progress. BB likes to say a year away, as do our intel guys. They say it every year. It ain't that easy to do. The article goes on. The leaked emails have also exposed the former top American diplomat for insulting Donald Trump as a national disgrace and an international pariah, as well as calling Hillary Clinton a greedy, not transformational politician. In another twist, President Ronald Reagan's former chief of staff, Ken Juberstein, had urged Mr. Powell not to publicly support the deal, but Mr. Powell wrote back to defend it being good for the country. The Iran deal is a good one for the country and our alliances, retired generals and admirals popping off. I have studied it pretty thoroughly. I have done emails before on TV. Have to deal with ISIS. Richard Haas. Petraeus Satow claiming to be undecided. Bullshit. They are just protecting their future options. I don't have or want any. Baker, Schultz, know what's right, as does Henry. Brent showed some guts. The website, which leaked the emails, has links to Russian military intelligence hacker group dubbed Fancy Bear, according to the Washington Post, and the FBI is investigating an apparent Russian attempt to undermine political competence in the US. The news comes shortly after Mr. Trump was accused of treason for encouraging the Russians to hack Miss Clinton's emails to search for the 30,000 missing documents that were not handed over to the FBI. This was written in 2016, as I said, and you've never seen any real evidence of Russia cyber hacking or influencing elections but as I said if you keep telling people something they'll believe it because they don't do the research the article goes on Mr. Powell has been discovered via more leaked emails to have tried to distance himself from the email scandal surrounding Miss Clinton which had dogged her election campaign I have a great deal of respect for Colin Powell and I have a lot of sympathy for anyone whose emails become public Miss Clinton told CNN on Thursday declining to discuss the issue well I don't believe Hillary Clinton has sympathy for anyone, but 
point of that article was Israel has so many nuclear weapons and is a nuclear power, but that's never mentioned by political leaders of the West and politicians. It's just Iran targeted as being a nuclear power when it doesn't even have a nuclear arsenal and has quite a peaceful history in terms of conflict with other countries. The Zionist neocons in America have a problem with Iran, seeking to strengthen unity inside Lebanon and also to expand its ties with Lebanon, as the quote I read in the first article talks about. Because they're psychopaths. How can that be a problem unless you want to implement your psychopathic agenda to conflict with Iran and Lebanon, which the Zionist neocons do on behalf of Israel? Ultimately, what we're seeing with Iran being targeted as a nuclear threat is just a repeat of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And we need not to fall for it because the consequences of believing weapons of mass destruction in Iraq was the invasion of Iraq. And as appalling and country-destroying as that illegal invasion was, the consequences of war with Iran are the implication of Russia and China being involved as well and the start of a global conflict, which is what the global elite want to bring in their desired structure, world government commanding a world army. And the role of the world army will be to to impose the will of the world government on any nation or region because the agenda ultimately is to break countries up into regions, as I talk about in episode 4, and I've talked about many other times. They don't want to have their entire lives dictated by the world government. The same as many people in Europe now don't want to have their entire lives dictated by the European Union. It would be the same model, but on a global level, with the unions imposing on their respective parts of the world on behalf of the world government. To create a global fascist control structure to stop it ever happening again, even though it was the West that stimulated the conflict originally. So hopefully people have learned from Iraq to not just take the official line as read, but we'll see how events unfold. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the contest in connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.